0: Paul deals in Romans 10 with the fact that he wants, of course, Israel to be saved. He wants his own people to be saved, but he recognizes that there's a problem there. He recognizes in verse 2 that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he says, being ignorant of God's righteousness, they seek to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. The context of this chapter really points us to the idea that if we want to be in a good relationship with God, there's an aspect of trust. Look at verse 14 of Romans 10. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's easy, I think, for us to misuse this passage to talk about the necessity of a preacher and I'm not saying that's the wrong way to use this passage but when we really look at what's going on what Paul is describing is a people who have not believed, who have not uh, who have not repented, who have not trusted, who have not submitted. And that's really what we see. The core of what he's saying here when he says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God I think goes right into the lesson series we've been looking at over the past few weeks. When we talk about the kingdom, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we've talked about the basic ideas of it, we've talked about how we need to know that king, we need to know who he is, we need to know what he wants, we need to be able to understand what he wants, and we can understand that. We have to move on from this in a sense that okay, I have this. I know who this king is. I understand his decree. Am I going to trust that decree? Am I going to trust what the king gives me? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I need to want to have faith. I need to want to trust my king. Trusting this king involves so much. And it draws us to question ourselves, what kind of relationship do I have with this king? Am, am I a part of what he wants to do? I appreciate so much uh, the study that Brother Mark led this morning in the auditorium concerning the idea of holiness and blamelessness. You know, we're not going to be a part of a holy and blameless king if we don't want to be part and parcel of what he wants. And there are three basic things that I want to consider this morning. First of all, we have to trust that the King can save us. We have to trust that that King can save us, that he has this power. He has this ability to save us. Secondly, we need to trust the King's plan of salvation. We need to trust in his plan and how he intends to save us. And thirdly, we need to trust in the new birth that he has prescribed in order to, uh, have that salvation. Again, I want to emphasize this may be some things that we already all know, but maybe we need to be reminded of them from time to time. But maybe you haven't looked at these things before when we look at the kingdom of God. You know, one of the great things that when we continue to look at the kingdom is when we're looking at the kingdom uh, in the sense of the rule of God and also in the sense of the kingdom itself, the domain of God. I think in the sense that, uh, for example, I grew up Understanding, or at least being taught that the prayer, prayer that Jesus prays in Matthew 6 when he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, earth as, as it is in heaven. I, I was taught growing up that we can't pray that prayer today because the kingdom has already come. Now, I'm sure many of us have been taught that and thought that before. Again, the idea that the kingdom is the church. But when we designate and we understand when we're talking about the kingdom rule in the hearts of men, we can still pray that prayer. Certainly the kingdom, the domain, the church has already come and it's already here. But in the sense that the rule of God has not yet come into every heart. The question you really got to ask yourself if, if you have a problem with that is, is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven? It's not. There's still work to be done. The kingdom is still coming to every person individually. And in that sense, uh, I think this lesson is very, very important. When we talked about trusting that the king can save us, you know, this whole world wants a reset button. E- even atheists, we, they, they want a clean slate. They want to start over. But the thing is, we've got to be willing to start over in the way that God has prescribed. And when we talk about the way that God saves us, what do people typically associate that with? Uh, Brother Mark this morning talked about a do or do not mentality. That's what the world associates with it. That's what they think Christianity is. But you look all the way back. Turn with me to Exodus 34. And I know we've looked at this passage before together. But in Exodus 34, remember Moses asked to see God. He wanted to see his glory. And this is what God did. He hid him in this rock. And passed by him. And it says in Exodus 34: the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There is so much packed into those two verses but just the basic thought that he has always been a God of grace and mercy. He does not want to punish people. And in fact, punishment is not his first resort. Punishment is the last resort. Discipline is what God calls us to. He calls us to a life of discipline. And he does this in his grace and mercy. He's not, he is a God that's merciful. He's gracious. But verse 7 tells us it's not to the point where he just ignores things. He understands things. He knows where we are. But you know He can save us. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We need to know, Christians, and we all need to know, friends, that salvation is a gift. It's something that we've been given. And every action that God has ever taken and will take and takes right now has been upon the basis of love, mercy, and grace. He never does anything to you out of spite or out of hatred or out of even dislike, right? He loves us. He's a king of grace and mercy. And because of that, we can trust that he can save us. But at the same time, we notice his holy character shows us that sin can't be tolerated. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. Let me pause right there to recognize that God is not powerless, right? He can save us. He can save us from our sins. And it's not like he can't hear us. He's going to listen to us if we're penitent. He goes on, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Of course, in the context, he's talking to sinful Israel. But... We know this applies to us as well. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, considering these important truths, Ezekiel 18.31, Cast away from you, God says, all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit, for why should you die, O house of Israel? He might as well ask that. We might as well put our name right there, right? Cast away your transgressions away from you and get a new heart and a new spirit. Not what you've had before. Not what you've had all this time. So we need to be saved. We know that sin can't be tolerated, but we need to trust that the king can save us. Well, how does that happen? The king saves us in the kingdom. Let me say this very clearly. Again, we've talked about, and I probably should have put up on the the, uh, chart again, uh, but the idea of the total kingdom, right, within the scope of that is Christ's kingdom. The total kingdom being all existence everywhere. Everyone is under the authority of God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. You are under the authority of God. And you may break his laws even without knowing what his laws are, right? Within the scope of that are those who submit to the baptism that Christ prescribed submit to the salvation that God gave, they become part of Christ's kingdom. And then, of course, that kingdom itself is going to be perfect, and you're going to have the eternal kingdom. But let me say, we're talking about the eternal kingdom. And there's no one in this world who who is going to be saved outside of the kingdom. Look at Colossians 1, please. Consider what God delivered us from And has conveyed or translated us to. So we're looking in Colossians 1 and verse 13. What are the limits of this salvation? Well, really, there's no limit to to that salvation in general, but we're the only ones that can limit it. Colossians 1 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so let me say again. Actually, I've got this right here. If we've got the total kingdom, within that, we have... I'm just going to put Christ up there. The kingdom of Christ. That's where salvation is. Right now. And so as it stands right now, that's the only place... You're not going to have salvation out here. This is why I have a bit of a problem with this idea that even among brethren that we have sometimes that, well, there, there must be saved people in every church. There must be. Well, the problem with that is that we've got so many churches that don't teach the truth about salvation. And I don't know about you, I don't see how we can get a re- certain result without the proper solution. And I'm not saying that there aren't Christians in other churches, but I'm just saying I, I don't see how it's really possible unless, of course, they've left the true church and left gone, gone somewhere else. Because what we've got right here, this is where salvation is, and then in the ultimate sense, we've got the eternal kingdom. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that kingdom's going to be delivered up. It's going to be purified by Christ. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats and give it up to the Father. So we can only go through our king, Jesus, to get into this kingdom, to be conveyed into this kingdom, which, by the way, think about this. I, I don't really think this; these two verses are talking about the church per se. I think it's involved in it. But I don't think it would work very well if you say that He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the church of the Son of His love. I guess it would work in a sense. But let me tell you, really, I think we're talking about the rule. We're talking about if I'm ruled by Jesus, if I put myself under His rulership, it cleanses me from sin. It takes me away from those the things that, that are in that power of darkness. It shields me from those things. Let me tell you, I don't get all that in the church. Look at all the problems that you have within the church in the first century. I know we can can have the sense of the universal pure church versus the local church. I'm I'm not saying too much about that. But we need to know that this is based in what Jesus said. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not getting there outside of Jesus. And wherever that kingdom is not, salvation is not there wherever that kingdom is i want to be in that rule i want to be within that relationship with god and so let's build that up let's think about this further how do i enter that kingdom well i need the right key in luke 11:52, 52 jesus says woe to you lawyers for you have taken away the key of knowledge you did not enter in yourselves and those who were entering in you hindered what is the key of knowledge what is that about Similar statement in Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Can kind I of suggest that kingdom of heaven and the key of knowledge, very much similar thing that we're talking about here? The key of knowledge. Christ gave Peter... And the other apostles, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You can look at Matthew sixteen, nineteen, and eighteen, eighteen to see, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And, and there's been a lot of, of different ideas about what that really means. May, you know, some people think uh, you, you die, you get up to the pearly gates. It's Peter that's got the keys to that gate, so he's going to let you in. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about that necessarily. But we need that right key, right? We need, we need to look at the apostles. They do have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. How does that really specifically work out? I want us to look specifically at Acts 15. I'm afraid that we don't appreciate the work of the apostles sometimes quite as much as we ought to. These are men that Jesus specifically chose for a specific purpose that they would carry on the work that he had begun. And that, of course, his spirit would be working through them. In Acts 15 and verse 7, says, When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. What's the kingdom? Excuse me, what's the key? What did the Gentiles hear? They heard the word of the gospel. That is the key to the kingdom. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Jesus Jesus is criticizing these people in the Old Testament times, right? Under the Old Covenant of taking away the key of knowledge? shutting up the kingdom of heaven, let me tell you, you look at the whole Bible, the message of the gospel is all through. And the message of the gospel, primarily Old Testament, is the sense of being faithful to God, giving yourself completely to Him. And because of that, that good news was able to be fulfilled in them. I believe those Jews that live faithfully under the old law, that may have committed sin, I believe they were cleansed when Jesus died on the cross. And there are passages we can look at for that. But we need this right key. We need the gospel. We need the the sense and the understanding that I need to be a part of this kingdom. Uh, Just like in Hebrews 11, looking for this land that is not made by hands. We cannot enter the kingdom without conversion. Acts 3.19, repent and be converted. Peter says there that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You might remember conversion means to revert or to cause to return or to bring back. It's not the idea of converting one form of energy into another. It's not a matter of converting one thing. You know, uh, one person I heard of secondhand once, a preacher told another preacher, You've got 99 cents at that church. You need to come over here and get the full dollar. Well, I, I, I hope that the change is much more drastic than that, right? That, that you're not just going from one church to another. It's that you're submitting yourself entirely and completely to God, coming back to him, reverting back to that creator, and so that our sins can be blotted out. So we need to trust the king, that the king can save us, and also we need to trust this idea of the king's plan of salvation. What does that involve? Well, some might expect for me to put up the five steps of salvation here, But really, in general, we're talking about, first of all, a changed heart. In Luke 17, verse 20, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. That's a different idea. That's a different idea than even the things that we think about today. And, and, and even those who believe, for example, our friends who may be premillennialists will, will believe in this literal kingdom that is to come down one day. It's going to be literal and physical. I, I wonder what they would say about this passage because if it doesn't come with observation, how does it come? It comes within us. It's a spiritual kingdom, of course. Uh, back to Acts 15, that it was purifying their hearts by faith. Again, Romans 10, 9 through 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For of the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It happens in the heart. It's not something that is immediately observable. And the interesting thing about that is you can spend a long time talking to somebody about their need to obey God. But that change may come just sort of out of the blue one day. Maybe the work that you've done. Maybe someone else has built on the work that you've done in them. Maybe God has continued to work on their conscience. It's not something that's immediately observable. But it begins with a changed heart. I've got to have that changed heart. I have to have a changed life as well. Acts 2.38, repent, Peter says to the people on Pentecost, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These, let's recognize, changed life, changed behavior, changed heart, these by themselves are not enough. I think we've got a lot of people in this world that have the changed heart. They're open, they have the, the mindset that they want to serve God, they want to be with God, and they may have a changed life. Maybe they've given up some things for the sake of Christ. But let's understand, these by themselves are not enough. James 2.24 says that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. I think what we really look at to be completely descriptive of this plan of salvation, we're talking about a changed relationship. Romans six seventeen. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's That's a very specific relationship, I think. And when we become too vague about things and just generally say, we need to serve God, we need to do the right thing, those things are valid. We need to be willing to ask ourselves, what kind of relationship do I have with God? We have to become children of the Most High. We have to become slaves of righteousness. How does that happen? It happens with the new birth. It happens with the rebirth into the kingdom. When does this change occur? It occurs in being born again. Born again, excuse me. Galatians 3.27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this doesn't rela- this, this relationship does not start until the sinner puts on Christ in baptism. And that relationship continues to develop. That, that relationship continues to be uh, what it needs to be. Uh, only if we're submitting continually to God. We don't have time to go here, but you might remember in John 3, a man uh, named Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, no one could do these things that you do unless they were sent from God. And Jesus challenges him. He says, unless you're born again, you cannot be part of the kingdom of God. He goes on even more specifically in verse 5 because Nicodemus says in verse 4, how can a man be born again? How is this possible? In verse 5, he says, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's understand in this passage, we're not talking about uh, one, uh, you know, two different births. This is one birth, born again, made up of water and spirit. What does that practically mean? some people would say well the water birth is your natural birth and your spirit is your spiritual birth well how that that really kind of messes up the whole the whole passage when you think about it it's a birth of water in terms of baptism and spirit in terms of obedience it is one baptism as it's referred to in ephesians 4 5 in water by the instruction of the spirit what are you doing when you're baptized you're obeying God, you're submitting to that water baptism. How'd you come to know about that water baptism? No one would put together on their own that to be saved, I need to be immersed in water. I don't think anybody would necessarily do that, just automatically. We had to be pointed toward that. And whether I submit to that or not tells me whether or not I trust the king or not. Do I understand, do I I trust the birth that he has prescribed? If we think that we enter the kingdom of Christ before baptism, we need to think about the biblical record. Many people, of course, are like Cornelius in Acts 10. His good deeds had come up as a memorial to God. God recognized that. He saw that, and he saw his penitence. But he was still in need of salvation. We know that every conversion of the book of Acts involves baptism. And further, of course, being raised with Christ, as we see in Colossians 3, happens at the moment of baptism. We see that in Colossians 2. That raised up with him to walk in newness of life is so, so very important. Again, I I don't want to oversell this. I think most of us would be uh, in agreement on this. But do we trust our king? Even if we know this, Can we use the scriptures to show someone else the salvation that our king has prescribed? Can we have this sense that I trust my king to the point that I'm going to let him teach. I'm going to let him be the one to show others the way. If I disagree with the word of God, I cannot trust my king. Well, when we think about gaining the kingdom in our lives, how do we get this kind of relationship? God wants you to be saved. To be saved, you have to join the kingdom. You can't be, you, you can't not be in the kingdom and still be saved. It's impossible. And as much as we may want to argue that or try to create situations like that, the biblical truth shows us. If I'm not part of the kingdom, I'm not saved. And to join this kingdom, we have to give ourselves to be ruled by the king. And as far as steps of salvation, I encourage you to look at the words of Jesus and think about your life this morning. Think about where you are. Think about what you have to do. Submit to him while we come. uh, Come forward while we stand and sing.